We're going to look at 1 John chapter 4 this morning. We're taking a a one-week break uh, from the book of Ephesians to talk about a life of service, and that coinciding with Mother's Day uh, seemed quite appropriate. I want to just, before we jump into the passage and kind of where we're going this morning, um, I want to hold out a vision for you as a church. I was a part of a wedding yesterday, uh, and it was it was with a groom and a bride that... um, that I had been their youth pastor since they were about in, in seventh grade. And I knew them through middle school, all through high school, um, in through college and beyond college now, and got to do their premarital counseling, got to be uh, in the front marrying them. And what a Mother's Day gift to have um, a very imperfect, um, regular mom and dad sitting on the groom's side, sitting on the, on the bride's side, and um, But just to see the fruit of their labor and what some of the things that they had done are this. Um, mom of the groom, for instance, had been teaching Sunday school at the same church, Valley Church, um, for a really, really long time. She had purposed in her heart, I'm going to put down roots and I'm just going to pour into ministry. What that did was that created a network of friends and people in her life. Uh, as her son grew up, uh, he was plugged into the into the youth group, and that was um, that was at the direction of the parents at first, because that probably wasn't his own natural bent. Um, same thing with the with the bride side that they just purposed to be at a church for a long time. And as I'm standing here, just realizing, praise God that for whatever reason, by His grace, He's allowed me to stay in the same city almost my entire life and see the fruit of long term ministry. My prayer for you, my vision that I want to hold out to this church is this. We have a heart of a youth pastor in Ben and in children's workers here at this church. Um, I haven't talked to every children's worker at this church, but I have talked to Ben extensively. And he has a heart to stay here long term. He has a heart to stay here and grow with your kids from the time they were little pipsqueak kids to the time they're standing in front of a crowd of people being entrusted with a wife, being entrusted with the care and love of a husband. And it's an amazing beautiful thing, and it's an honor to be a part of, and that's my heart's desire for here. And in a wedding, what you see is uh, these were two ministry-minded, Jesus-loving individuals who began a new family yesterday. And it's just a powerful picture, and what's needed in that are not all people my age and younger, but the whole body of Christ coming together, pouring into, investing in, and sticking around. So I just want to hold that out to you. I got to see just a little sliver of fruit that comes with persevering, obeying in the same direction for a long period of time. That's my prayer. By the way, here's another interesting note, middle schoolers. Uh, I say this all the time when I was a youth pastor. I'd say, you don't know the person you might marry one day could be sitting in this very youth group. You could be sitting next to them. Well, that was true in the case of these two that got married yesterday. Now, God didn't reveal that to them until much later into college, but it was true. They were in youth ministry all those years, uh, serving and going on missions trips and enjoying the beach and all of that. So anyway, I just put that out to you. First John chapter 4 is where we're going to start. We're going to talk a little bit about moms um, this morning, but really we're going to talk about God because that's what we're here to celebrate and honor um, in the midst of that. Loving mom is something that's absolutely uh, universal. That doesn't mean necessarily that everyone is in a great place with their mom right now. But here's what's fascinating, is that no matter where you go, every single person you ever meet uh, has a mom. 
right? So that's something in common that you have with that person. And what's funny is you could be talking to a super mild-mannered, um, let's take a computer programmer. I met a computer programmer yesterday. They seem fairly mild-mannered for the most part. You could insult him, cut him down, do all kinds of things. Um, I didn't test this on the guy I met yesterday. But if you start attacking his mom, verbally or otherwise, there's a, I have a strong hunch that mild-mannered computer engineer guy, computer programmer guy, he would suddenly get feisty. There's something about mom that you're like, no, don't mess with mom. You can cut me down, you can cut down my profession, but don't touch my mom. You, you, you go to a biker convention, which I don't frequent very often, but we have some that, that do. Um, and here's what's funny. You get the most burly-looking guy, rough-looking guy. You're like, man, I wouldn't want to meet up with this guy in a dark alley. And he rolls up his sleeve, and what's there? It's the heart mom tattoo, right? He loves mom. I mean, there's, it's just, it's kind of this universal thing that moms are loved, and it's pretty awesome. And it's uh, certainly not enough that we take one day to spoil you. I hope some of you uh, spilled some food in your bed this morning as people were trying to serve you breakfast in bed and that kind of a thing. It's all part of the fun of being a mom. Let me ask you this question. I want some real responses here, so I need you to think and, and, uh, and actually put, put this into words. Uh, but but um, not by show of hands, but just by, by acknowledgement. Um, think about this. Does, does your mom love you today? Does your mom love you today? Okay. Now, here's the follow-up question to that. How do you know that your mom loves you? Okay. Now, that's the question I'm posing to you, and I want to hear some responses of how do you know your mom loves you? Let's hear it. She tells you. Okay, what else? She takes care of us. How? Feeding, teaching. Yeah, Ethan. She's just mom. Okay, and that's enough. Okay, what else? Time. Okay, yeah. Anything else? Friend. Yeah. Forgives, does special things. Okay? Couldn't we go on and on? I mean, just extolling. Here's, here's the reasons we know. For most of us in this room, it took about half a second when I asked the question, does your mom love you? It just took time for, you know, the sound waves to hit you, you to register and go, yes, she does. And then when the follow-up question of how do you know that she loves you, it comes out in actions. It comes out in words. It comes out in time. As a Christian, this isn't different or uh, foreign to us. We know the life of service. That's what Jesus called us to. The title this morning is that a life of service isn't just mom's gig, right? It's for all of us. It's the normal Christian life. Jesus took up the servant's towel. He wrapped it around him. Mom takes up the apron. Mom takes up rubber gloves sometimes to clean things up. Mom takes up the car keys, right? Mom takes herself up out of bed in the middle of the night in service and caring for those that she loves. In fact, done probably in a thousand different ways every single week. Let me ask this question. Is it possible for a child to be loved by mom and uh, generously loved by mom and simply keep receiving from mom, keep receiving from mom, and not reciprocate in return? Yes. I would venture to say absolutely that's true. We have a bunch of big boys and big girls, right, who've grown up into big, big boy, big girl bodies, and for whatever reason, their love hasn't progressed beyond the point of, thank you, mom, receiving from mom. Mom, you're so generous, and just kind of, kind of receive, receive, receive from mom. However, 
I would venture to guess that most people on some level grow in their love for mom that it turns to things like gratitude. It turns to things that uh, that be reciprocated in return. Not to pay back mom. How do you pay back someone who gave you birth? Kind of hard, right? I mean, just... There's not a monetary value you could put up with that. The nine months that she spent with you before and the years that she spent after, you can't really make that up, but it turns to gratitude and to service. Why is that? Here it is. You love your mom. You wish to please her. You wish to give to her in return. You wish to communicate to her how remarkable her love is, how faithful it's been, the things she's done for you. And some people even just have such a mom that they, they want to talk about their mom to other people. Any chance they get, they go, oh, my mom one time this. My mom is this. Now, I recognize on a day like today, there's a lot of hurt that attends any holiday that we celebrate. And today, I just want to acknowledge from the front and not make light of those of you who say, wow, I wish I had a relationship with my mom that I could feel that way. I've longed for a mom to be like that. Let me just say simply this. I point to uh, I point to the gospel as your hope. I point to Jesus as your example of what that is. Some of you have fathers and mothers where you say it doesn't line up with this fairy tale picture. There is no fairy tale mom, but some of you may have lived through a little bit more of uh, the tangled mom than uh, than the one that I'm that I'm describing right now. This picture of us loving our moms. And this picture of knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that our moms love us because they care for us, give to us, are faithful in their love toward us, is a picture of our Heavenly Father in us. Let me explain. It starts with a generous, giving God who gives and gives and gives. Before we were even born, chooses and gives and blesses, and all we can do is receive. That's what it starts with. It's not just that, but it's a God who, who shows his love with action. Ultimately, we'd point to Jesus and the cross, but there's a hundred other ways that we could look to. That's just the biggest and most prominent one. We receive and then follow in kind. We receive from a generous God, and that, that fills us with a generosity that, that we then, that, then give to others. We love, the Bible says, because he first loved us. That's the power of modeling. Some of you ladies know what it is to be a mom because your mom taught you how to do that. She modeled it for you. Some of you still call mom and say, what's that one recipe? What am I doing wrong here? What, am I, what do I need here? And that's a great thing to have that. God modeled for us what love is so that we could in turn love others. Some never grow beyond receiving from God. And they're just in that mode of receiving from a generous God, receiving from a generous God. It never translates into loving service in return. But others grow in a love for God such that it turns to serving, pleasing Him, longing to please Him, and longing to talk to other people, extolling the greatness of God and our generous God. You see the parallel? Talking about a life of service... We have a word that we use around Neighborhood Bible Church here, and we've kind of taken, tried to just simplify a lot of things, and we use this word share a lot. And I want to just briefly roll out to you, because some of you are new and have never seen this. Uh, some of you, it'll just be a little bit of a refresher. But the word share captures a lot of what it is to have an outflow of a relationship with Christ. As a parent, 
one of the things that um, I've talked to a lot of parents, witnessed a lot of parents and whatnot, um, I don't think I've ever witnessed a parent scold their children for sharing. I haven't. I've seen parents from all walks of life applaud their children, compliment their children, even ignore their children while they share, but I've never seen someone say, Johnny, get over here right now. We're having a talk. Don't you ever share. I've never heard that. So I, they're, they're out there. I'm sure they're out there. I've just never been a part of that. So it blesses most parents' hearts in this world when it intrinsically comes from within that a kid just says, here, do you want part of what I have? You don't have any. I have more than I need. That's just a blessing to a parent's heart. That's, that's the, the heart uh, that, that we want to we bless God's with that. And that is God's imprint on us to even have the capacity to think that way and to be blessed by that. Now, what are we to share? The mission of the church is quite clear. We're to share a great love and we're to share a great message. And so at NBC, we talk about things like evangelism, which is simply sharing the gospel. It's being a witness. It's talking about this great God that we serve. And that's being evangelistic. That's sharing the most important thing you could share with someone. And that is the life-giving message of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and so we, we preach it. We proclaim it. We're justified by hearing what we believe, or believing what we hear. Not only that, but, uh, but a great love. We share our resources. We share our time. We share our very lives. Now, I hope this is familiar to a lot of you. This is our play button, and this is a, a little picture. It's a little metaphor of kind of how we do church and how we think through church um, here at Neighborhood, at Neighborhood Bible Church. The play button is kind of a simple visual representation, I'll show it to you in a second, of both our purpose and kind of the path of a disciple. As we see a disciple growing, we see them kind of moving around the three points of this play button. The play button is super simple and super common. You see play buttons all over the place. Think about this, when you push a play button, there are things that go on, you're pushing in faith this button, and there are things that go on that are unseen to you, possibly un. Uh, comprehended by you, but they just, they, they just move. It's also a green play button because green means go, right? Action. We just sang this song. Send me. The Christian life, the church is one of movement. It's not one of holding ground and sitting still. Let me walk you through a little bit. Here's what we believe that every maturing disciple is growing and passionately involved in. One is this, loving God. Loving and, and having a, deeping relation, deeply, a deepening relationship with God. Secondly, is committed and loving relationships with the family of God. A part of how that's accomplished is joining together once a week, bringing together our hurts, our fears, our joys, our answered prayer, our prayer requests, and, and being together. But that's not all it is. It's all the interworkings that go on throughout the week. Finally, that flows out into serving and sharing with other people. Let me show you how this works at Neighborhood Bible Church. In red, worship services. Uh, in, in red, community groups happening throughout the weeks. And finally, with regard to serving and sharing with other people, share events. Share events can happen in a formal, organized, group-wide way, all church. They can happen within your community group, and they ought to be happening on a regular basis as a family and as an individual as you walk through your day. You can see that there's kind of this progression here. It starts with worship. That's, that's number one. It flows down into community, and it works itself out into sharing. 
Ephesians, we already covered this, but I just want to show this to you right here in our study that we've been in the midst of Ephesians. We're wrapping it up. But it, it gives this beautiful picture of what the church is about. Why are there leaders given to the church? Why is there organization? Some of that is under attack. We don't need churches anymore. We don't need public proclamation teaching of God's word. We see that differently. We don't see that in the scriptures anywhere. We see that there is an ongoing, continuous progression to these three areas that, that we've talked about and highlighted. Look at Ephesians chapter 4.11. It says this, It was He, talking about Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Those are just some of the different spiritual gifts that are offered to the body of Christ. Here's a very important question. You look at that passage and you ask this question, but why? It goes on in verse 12 to say this, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Where is this whole thing going? What am I doing here week after week? I've got gold star attendance. I've been here 50 out of 52 weeks. Where this is heading is this. This is heading to complete manhood, complete womanhood, that you would grow up in Christ. We're on a journey together. Some have just tasted of the love of God for the very first time. Those are such exciting people to talk to because it's like standing in front of a bride and groom on their wedding day and they can literally hardly say a word because they're so enraptured in love with the person standing across from them. Some of those, I talked to a guy who was at the wedding. He said, man, some of the things you said in in the message are so true. I've been married 30 years and it's just like what you described. And what I described was, it's hard, there's the self, that's going to be an enemy to all the intimacy God wants for your marriage, and it's a wonderful, profound mystery. It's a living representation of Jesus and his bride, the church. And that's what you get to portray as you go through life together now, instead of just as an individual. And it's a beautiful gift of God. So the end goal, the end destination is maturity, complete, finishing well. That's what we want as a church. Today, as we talk about a life of service, I, w- I just wanted to give you some context. We're focusing on this share component. We're going to look at the word share a little bit and say, what is a life of service and how is this for every Christian? First John chapter 4, verse 7. As we read through 7 through about, uh, well, partway down, um, here's what I want you to catch. You'll notice that as we talk about a life of service, I'm starting in a different place than maybe you would expect. Here are the big ideas I want you to get, okay? I want you, as you think about living a life of service, to rejoice in the love that God has for you. And then I want you to react to that love in all situations of life. So it starts with rejoicing that this God that we just sang about, this God with the scope of all humanity, loves you. Let's read in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Now listen as John writes this. There are going to be a lot of commands in here for us to be doing. But in view, I want you to have this notion, this rejoicing. I am known by the Father through Jesus. Verse 7. Beloved, already starts there. You're beloved if you're in Christ. 
you're kept in Christ. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me pause there at verse 11 for a moment. A life of service begins, ends, and finds its ongoing strength and vitality in the very love of God. We start in talking about a life of service with the love of God. Because if you start with service, if I started walking right into opportunities that are in front of you, ways to grow in your acknowledgement of the needs around you, here's what would happen. If I take serving God and I divorce it from the love of God, it does a couple of things. First of all, it potentially induces or produces death-giving, life-robbing religion. That's what it does. You take the love of God out of the picture, you start right with serving God, that's where it heads. Here's the second thing of why I wouldn't want to do this. To train, to exhort, to, to shame, to coerce anyone into a life of service is not only futile, you cannot force this from the outside. That's why we don't believe in a theocracy. The Bible doesn't teach a theocracy. Forcing people to believe like we believe. So it's not only futile, but it's actually counterproductive. Because what you do is this. You can, you can get people to do some things externally, but what are you doing internally? Potentially you're driving them away from the gospel. Do you see that? Because they're saying, man, I want to serve God. It's been told me I need to serve God. I want God to love me. I want God to bless me. I want to be okay with God, so I need to serve God. You are shoving that person further and further away from the very life-giving message they need, which is you are. Uh, it's impossible to please God apart from the risen Christ, apart from the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins found only in Jesus. This is a message for those of you who are praying for, concerned about, thinking about your children. Don't shame them. Don't coerce them into, into doing things. There's a certain amount when they're little that, that you order their day. You structure their time, right? But gradually you're moving away from that where you say, this is now, this is now your call on this. That's where I'm, I'm growing you to. That's maturity. That's completeness that you're pointing to. If you're still making those decisions, if you're still deciding all of those things, and your kid is 20 years old, still living under your roof, and you're managing that way, you've done a poor job as a parent. I wouldn't say you're doing a poor job. I would say change your parenting. They're still under your roof. You still have a little bit of time. If you're not there yet, begin now to, to, to work out of that. You don't want them dependent on that. You can't coerce this from the outside. How about coworkers? How about families? How about neighbors? The message is this. Give them Jesus, not good works. Don't expect those who don't have the love of God to love with the love of God. That's something so challenging for me sometimes. I want them to act the way a Christian should act, 
when they have no ability, no power, no right to, to do that. Our very capacity to love others is dependent on His first loving us. What's the golden rule? Who, who knows what the golden rule is? Let's hear it. Yeah, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Now, uh, sometimes we get these little, uh, you know, axioms in our mind or we hear, we hear some different things and we say, well, you know, is that just, uh, an, an American, you know, truism or is that actual scripture? This is scripture. Uh, Matthew chapter seven from the words of Jesus. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Catch this. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus had a way of taking things, making them super simple. If you forget all that other stuff, here it is. Here's a simple guideline. Here's a simple uh, thing. What does this mean? The golden rule doesn't save but shows. Here's what I'm trying to draw out with this. If you have ever tried to live the golden rule, you will find that you're a failure. Every one of you. I know this to be true. I've tried it. How many of you had moms that said the golden rule at some, at some point in your life? Did you hear this from, from, from dear old mom? Yeah. My mom absolutely did. We had four boys in the house growing up. Uh, it was a regular thing. We could finish, this was one of the things we could finish her sentence for easily on. But there were days I would go to church every other week growing up because I grew up in two different homes. And on the weeks that I heard things from scripture, I had a tender heart toward her and I'd say, man, I really want to treat other people the way I want to be treated. I'm going to do unto other people. But you know how long that lasted? Sometimes a day, sometimes five minutes. I mean, honestly, I'd get into the car and I'm like, I'm, you know, the hardest person for me as the third in line child was to do that for my younger brother. Because there was a pecking order. We were like elephant seals and I was third in line and I took it from the two older ones. They were bigger than me, stronger than me. I was always smarter and funnier. But the younger one, to do it to the younger one, that lasted five minutes. And I, it was crystal clear to me. I said, man, I can't do this. I try to do it, but he's so ungrateful. Or he's got that sort of snarky look on his face, and I just want to hit him. I just, I, this doesn't work. It's so hard to do this. You guys have siblings. You guys have coworkers. You have family members. You have neighbors. You know what I'm talking about. The golden rule is like all rules or all laws. Ultimately, the golden rule, the golden law, reveals the need for a Savior. It's exactly what the Ten Commandments is all about. The Ten Commandments aren't meant to be put up there as this inspirational thing to say, now go and live this way and you'll be good with God. That's what a lot of people think your Christian message is about. Correct them. Speak about it. No, no, no. The Ten Commandments reveal the need for a Savior. Every time someone came to Jesus and said, hey, I've kept all those from the time I was a little kid, what would Jesus do? Law to the proud. Anyone who came to him proud, he would give them law. And every single time, it reveals that we break the law. We're lawbreakers. That's why I had utter confidence calling you all failures, and I include myself in that. I know it's not a way to win the crowd to you, but it's just, it's just truthful. So the golden, real, the, the, the golden rule does what all law does. It shows, it, it, it reveals, it doesn't save you, it shows that, that, that you need a savior. But it also shows something else. Living out the golden rule, here's what happens. 
When someone is transformed, when someone is regenerated, they've had a heart of stone, they're given a heart of flesh by the power of the risen Christ. Here's what begins to happen. Strange things start to take place in your life and other people notice and you notice it. And that is this. You begin to willingly submit to those around you. You begin to willingly offer to other people the way that you would want to be treated. You don't know what to do in a situation. You say, gee, what would I want to do in this situation? You begin to think compassionately towards people. Let me put myself in their shoes for a second. How would I be thinking? You know what? That comment needs to just be withheld. That's not a very kind, polite comment. It doesn't give grace according to need of this moment. I'm just not going to say it. All of a sudden, your life pattern begins to change. Are you living out the golden rule in hopes of getting to heaven and being in God's good graces? No. Laws don't save. The golden rule doesn't save you. But the golden rule being fleshed out in your life begins to reveal a change. This is a weird way to think about it, but it's absolutely biblical, and that is this. You're possessed. You are possessed by the Holy Spirit. And as you're possessed by the Holy Spirit, your life changes. Your thought process changes. The way you look at, size up, and judge other people changes. I mean, it would be so fascinating to just listen to story after story of some of you who've been walking with Christ and say, what was it like when God got a hold of your heart and you began to see people, not from the external, that were all born with looking at each other in the flesh? How are they dressed? What do they do? How are they carrying themselves? Do I connect with them? Are they like me? Do they put me off or on? But you begin to see people from the inside out. You begin to weigh the heart. You begin to measure what that person's really about. And it's an amazing thing that goes on. The golden rule shows this transformation transformation in you. Am I saying Christians live out the golden rule perfectly? Of course not. We still struggle with this. It's not my younger brother anymore. But there are other people that are in that place now. We, we used to have this thing on one of the staffs that I was on as a, as a prayer team, and they were, they were extra grace-required people. There's some people, you just get a family gathering together. Some people, hey, EGR. I mean, it's just an EGR. You, you've, you've got it. You just say, Lord, right now, I mean, if you, you need to channel some more grace through me because I'm struggling. There are those people that are, that are like that, uh, which means they're probably some of us, right? None of us ever thought we were that, but that was probably just our own arrogance. Somewhere else, someone was praying for us as EGRs as well. Go with God, go after God, and rejoice that you know Him. I want to just tell you a quick story. Luke, Luke chapter 10 records this for us. You don't need to turn it. You can kind of jot this down if you'd like. But Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out. We just sang this song. Let worship be the motivation that I would go out and speak about Christ. Not the golden rule, not good works, not a life of service. Let worship be the thing that drives me. Let pleasing you, God, be the thing that drives me to get out of my comfort zone, open my mouth and talk about how great and generous and giving my great God is. Jesus sends out 70. He appoints 70 people. He says, go and prepare the way for me in some cities that I'm going to be at. They go. Do you remember the story? And they come back. And these 70, uh, these 70 apostles really that were sent out, they were just, they were just giddy with victory. They were all dizzy with the conquests that they had made in the spiritual realms. And you could just probably almost hear them all yapping about, 
these crazy ministry things that were going on. And Jesus brings it into focus by saying this. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. All these great ministry successes that you have, all these miracles that took place right through your very body and mouth. Imagine this, chitter-chatter, all it. Hey, do not rejoice in this. Kind of a downer, huh? Here's what he says. He wants to bring it in. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, what? That your names are recorded in heaven. Seventy people get sent out by the very word and mouth of Jesus. They have incredible ministry success. They all got, gather back up and they return. And Jesus says, that's fine and dandy. That's, that's great. But don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in what? Rejoice that you're intimate with the Father. Do you see why when I'm talking to you, church, about a life of service, we're just talking about the love of God? If we can rejoice over that, if we can really get that, the rest will take care of itself. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things, they'll be added to you. Don't go after ministry success. Don't go after a lot of uh, numbers that you think. Don't, don't go after a big uh, you know, ministry organization that, that, that you're going to put together. God may use you to do all of that and more. But rejoice in the fact that your name is recorded in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Rejoice that you're loved by God. Figure this part out, friends, and the life of service will come. It will come. It's a foregone conclusion that that will flow out of your life. God will form that in you as you love him. All right, I said that we're going to rejoice and we're going to react. React usually is meant, uh, or is usually, I think, thought of in a more negative kind of term, right? Um, reactionary and, you know, he's so reactionary, whatever. Um, let me give you a definition just so you know, you know why I'm using this term and, and how I want you to think about it. React is to act in response to an agent or influence. To act in response to an agent or influence. We love because he first loved us. You get the love of God and you just react to that. You act in response to the agent or influence. Psalm 37, 4 says this, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. When I first read that verse, I probably heard it earlier, but I didn't really start reading my Bible until I was uh, 17. I read it in spurts. But all of a sudden, God put a hunger for, the, for, God's, for His Word in me, and so I began to read it. And I remember reading that verse, and I thought, man, that is a, that's my life verse. I mean, I want a surfboard. I need a new car. I'm driving an old, you know, lime green Pinto. A girlfriend would be nice. A little more cash. Not a lot, just some. I mean, that's what I, that's what I kind of read this verse to mean. And I came to understand this verse in, in, a, in a different way. I came to understand this verse this way. When I say that you ought to react out of the love of God and just move and have your being out of that reality, out of that influence. If that's really going on in your life, here's, here's what this verse is talking about. Go and do what you want. Go and do what you want. 
Delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. And He will give you the desires of your heart. He will put in you your deepest desire. It's not the gifts, it's the gift giver, right? We can settle for so long sometimes with the trinkets of this world. Our deepest desire is God Himself. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. In essence, God's will becomes your will. He's forming His will in you. We sing this song, Break my heart with the things that break yours. Enliven my heart to the things that cause you to rejoice. Draw my attention, Lord, to the things that have your attention. Move my feet to the places you would have me go. Let my money, my time, my health, my family, my possessions be yours alone to invest and do as you would please. John 15, 7 says this, If you remain in me, the word if is really important here. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Some of you have stories of lives that were begrudgingly doing the chore of loving other people until God got a hold of you and you began to find it really is more blessed to give than to receive. Some of you have testimonies and life stories that say it genuinely is my food to do my Father's will. We'll eat. I mean, that's kind of important at some point. But I've got another day's worth of work. And that's, that's what I'm feeding on. That's what I'm energized by. That's what I'm really growing up in is this spiritual food that I'm chowing on right now. Food, well, we'll have that. Some of you hear that and it sounds totally foreign. You go, man, I can't think, I can't imagine my next meal being less important than really doing the will of God and inconveniencing myself. And, and so prove to be my disciples. Here's the reality. God is forming His love in us. Back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, No one has ever seen God. If, there's another if, if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Part of the sanctification process, big fancy word, for Christ forming Himself in us, growing us up into maturity. Part of how He is accomplishing that is by you loving one another. Done in isolation, you can't live the Christian life, the biblical Christian life, the Jesus-defined Christian life. You cannot do it in isolation. It's impossible. There's whole things here that, that, that wouldn't make sense, or at least by willing isolation. It's impossible. Verse 16, look down at verse 16 with me. It says this, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, 
and God in them. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Part of a regenerated life is that you begin to walk like Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him, talking about Jesus, must walk as Jesus did. Junior high group is called the following because we're going to follow in the footsteps. We're not going to give lip service to it only. We're going to claim to live in Jesus and we're going to live in Jesus. I wrap up with this. A life of service. What is a life of service? When you really start to notice need, uh, it begins to be crushing sometimes and overwhelming sometimes and really uplifting and really encouraging. Some of you are super far down the road and those of us who are behind you, we need to learn from you. Tell us what you're doing. Don't keep it to yourself. Help us walk that road to be there with you, walking this path 20 years down the road. Some of you haven't begun this at all. Get around some of those who are living a life of service. I want to give you some really good news today. You have won the lottery in this life. You are living like kings. I am living like kings today. I'm going to throw out some stats, and sometimes stats can kind of jumble some of your brains. I get that. Bear with me. Here's the good news. You are rich. We are a rich church. If you don't feel like it, it's because of this. We tend to measure these things in relative terms. If you have lived in what's sometimes called a third world country, a poverty-stricken nation, for any length of time, even a week or two can do this to you. You come back and you realize, I'm rich. I can throw a rock, let that rock land somewhere, and literally eat my food off of that sidewalk. It's so clean compared to the rest of the world. I could eat my food off of where people walk. It's literally cleaner than a lot of people where, where, where they eat their food. Let me throw out some stats to you. If you make $25,000 a year, you are wealthier than 90% of the world's population. $25,000 a year puts you in the upper 90% of the entire world. Thank your mom. No, I'm kidding. She had nothing to do with it either. You were born, you were born in a place and in a time and with some connections that, that you, that, that you're in the upper 90 if you make 25,000. Bump that up to $50,000 a year. And that number climbs to the upper 99 percentile. You are wealthier than 99% of the entire world's population if you make $50,000 a year. Almost half of the world's 6.7, however you measure it, billion people on earth today live on less than $2 a day. You begin to catch the image of that. Our kids, uh, some of our kids, have more money than that. These are people raising a family, living in the world. Some of you, uh, this will put in a little bit of perspective. You may bemoan your car, be frustrated with your car. Um, go hug your car today. Um, when you realize that, that 93% of the people in this world don't own a car, you'll be, you'll be, thanking your, your, you'll, you'll be thankful for your, your car in a little bit of a different way. Here's the point of all this. Lack of money is not the problem. Lack of money in a life of service is not really the issue. Let me show you a, a, a screenshot of 1 Timothy 6. Some of you remember this picture. This is a, a group of Chinese 
Bible college students. There were tears coming down these students' eyes as they had received a book in their hand that was a commentary on the whole Bible. I didn't pay for the Bible. I was just there as part of the receiving team that got to give this to an interior part of China. And there were tears streaming down their faces. And I asked my translator, why are they so sad? I didn't. I, I mean, I, I could tell there were tears of joy. Why are they so happy about this? They said, for most of them, this is, this is the, the one commentary in the Bible they'll ever receive, they'll ever own. One. It was brand new. Some of them were smelling it. And I said, I got up there and I said, translator, I, I need to take a picture of this. This is just remarkable. I've got a library full of books. I went to school with a bunch of people like me, spoiled with books galore. And so they held up their precious treasure of this, of this book. Just a little snapshot of who's rich and who's not in this world with, with money matters. First Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Amen to that lately, huh? But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, even a single commentary that will feed these people for a long time in the Word. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. There's our word. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. There's some bad news. Here's some of the bad news. If I define tithing as 10% of of your pre-tax income, and you take that and you give that to your local church, you give that to Christian ministries, charities that that, that you donate to, you are in the 5% of American households who currently do this. These stats are about four years old, so it's probably a little bit variant, but roughly 5% of American households do that. The average American churchgoer, Christian churchgoer, gives 2.5% of their income. That's just on average. What happens sometimes is we get into the trap of thinking, if I just had some more money, if I just had a little bit more, I'd be able to give more. I've fallen into that. I've thought that was true. Let me give you some shocking statistics, a shocking statistics. 1933 in America, what's going on? Height of the Great Depression. You know what the average American Christian church giver gave at the height of the Great Depression? 3.3% 3.3% of their income. We've, we've fallen since the Great Depression. Our incomes have increased, so has our, our, our giving has decreased. Now, after receiving roughly 2% of American church-going Christians, churches tend to, the stats are roughly this, tend to keep 98% of it right here in the States, and a mere 2% goes overseas to evangelistic mission work or to help the poorest of the poor around the world. So what we're talking about is this, 2% of 2% of the wealthiest Christian community in all of Christendom is going to those who are the most needy, both spiritually and with basic physical needs. Now, this can really bum you out and, uh, and can be a downer, but I want to leave you with a, with a what-if question. What if American Christians just started to tithe? 
I mean, literally, American, the American church could change the world. Now, obviously, once those funds are given, how they're appropriate, appropriate and all of that is, 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 is into play. But the American church would make the rest of the world stand up and take absolute notice. This is at just kind of a tithe level. Look at what James says. James says this, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Ew. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. You have lived a life on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. I want to offer you an uplifting message as we leave. Some people will leave a message like today and say, why do you have to bring up all that downer stuff? Here's what I'd say to you. It was prayed before we went out here as a band, before the band came out and and shared this morning. Someone prayed, God, let your word offer some perspective today. That word caught my ear because that's what I've been thinking about this week. Let it offer some perspective. A few tips on how to share. Here it is, okay? Share what you have, not what you don't. Just start right today sharing what you have. It's impossible for me to give what I don't have. God wouldn't, God would be a terrible father to ask of me to do something that he hasn't richly blessed me to be able to do it. Sometimes you're caught in this kind of a thing. You could be driving down. Some people are going to Mexico this summer. You're driving along in Mexico, and a little kid comes up and is washing your window. Some people's brains go this way. God, I'm angry that this kid has to make a living running around cars, washing people's windows. Some of them are shooing them away, but for a few little pennies, that's their living. Why won't you do something about it? And then the still, small, quiet voice of God comes along and says, I have. I've created you. I've blessed you. And I've put you in this moment. Do something about it. The retort can go something like this. But God, there's so many of them. Yeah, but this one's right in front of you. Do something about it. Act on it. Give your life away. I challenged this couple yesterday. Do not settle for the American dream. Please don't settle for the American dream. Give your life and risk your life as a married, godly, ministry-minded couple for the gospel. Invest it. Share what you have, not what you don't. Secondly is this. Freely we receive, freely give away. Freely you've received, freely give it away. You've been given health, Give that away. You've been given time. Give it away. Do you eat a meal as a family? Is that fun? Give that away. Include other people into that. Not just talking about money here. I want to talk about money because that's a, that's a giant hurdle for some people. We decided to do something in October of 2009. Some of you were here. And we called it the, the talent show. The talent show was this. We were talking about share and how we share as a church. 
And on that Sunday, everyone who was sitting in service, just like this, from third graders on up to our oldest of adults, they all received something that they probably didn't expect going into that. Everyone at church that day was given an amount of money in an envelope. And they were challenged to go and use this money to the glory of God. Use what you have, not what you don't. Man, if I just had an extra 25 bucks, well, now you do. That was the, that was the motive behind it. Look, freely you received it. Now freely give it away. It was kind of a picture. It was kind of a, a, a metaphor. Third graders to adults. Here's the other thing. There were differing amounts. Some people got a lot more money than other people. That's true of biblical gifts too, of spiritual gifts too. Some of you are given a tremendous amount of talents. Some of you are given a smaller portion. Be faithful with what's handed to you. If you're handed a five, use that for the glory of God. If you've got 50 bucks, use that for the glory of God. Here's what, 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 here's what the, the rules were. The rules were this. You could not take your money and do the cop-out move. I'll just put it in the offering. You couldn't take the money and give it back to the church. That was against the rules. You couldn't use it to serve yourself or your immediate family. I haven't gotten mom anything for Mother's Day. We'll do a nice meal at Outback today. That's not what the money was for. Those were two hard and fast rules. Now, it's before the Lord, whether they followed or not. Um, if you got deathly sick later on, it may have been because you broke one of those. We gave a few guidelines. These were strongly encouraged. You do this to your kids sometimes. I strongly encourage this, but I'm not going to mandate it. It's not a rule. Here were the strong guidelines. Don't give cash away to someone. Dream a little bit here. Someone's just handed you some money. Don't just walk up to the first person you say and say, hey, you look like you could use some cash. Hey, do this in Jesus' name. Off you go. Dream a little bit. How could you take that money and use it for God's glory? And then finally, be spirit-led. God is a creator, not a copier. Pray over this. Let this be a spiritual exercise. God, freely I received some money today in church. I, I thought they were going to come and ask for my money. I got some money. That's like the grace of God. Now, now how do you want me to, to invest this, to give this away, to, to further your kingdom with this? And this message went out really strongly. We cannot be the church collectively where you can be the church individually. You catch that? We cannot share collectively in the same way that you can when you are as an individual in some of your places. Now, that, that, that works inverted as well. There are things we can do together you can't possibly do on your own. There's great power and synergy in that. That was just kind of a fun experiment. It was so cool to hear uh, how God did that. We have this on our website, by the way. You can go and look under how we share. There's a whole write-up. Some people uh, were, were kind enough to, to write their experiences, too, and just say, here, were, here was how I used the money. Here was how God uh, worked in me. We have a God that cares for other people besides us in our country. His scope is global. We talk about this in Ephesians all the time. We just sung about it. Every tribe, every nation, every people group around the world. There is a lot of urgent work to do for us as Christians. And yet, Jesus wept over locals. He wept over Lazarus, who was right in front of him and was his friend. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, where he was. That's where we get the whole global idea. We're thinking globally, but locally at the same time. And we kind of merge those two. 
And whether we're ministering to something going on next door, across the street, or somewhere super exotic that takes 12 hours to get to by plane, it's all one and the same. Freely we've received, freely we're going to give. Can I say this? I pray I don't see some of you in the next year. I pray that some of you leave this church to go on the mission field. Some of you may be called to go help plant another church. Greg and Tracy Holzklaus said, Dave, we love this church. We helped get it going with, with some, some community groups. God is calling our hearts over to Santa Cruz to do that again with a new group of people. I said, man, I love seeing you around, Greg and Tracy. But see you. Don't let the door hit you on the way back, uh, out. We celebrated it. That's a great thing. Kids, we love having you with us. I would be tickled to to see you guys off at the airport as you go off with fear and trepidation, leaning wholly and resting completely on the love of God that is beckoning you to a people group that need Jesus. Parents, put that vision in your family. I hope you will celebrate me leaving one day should God call me away from this place, which I am evaluating. I love it here. People ask, how's ministry going? I say, it's tough. It's a battle. It's a fight. But I love it. I feel like God has us here. I hope that the day we're called, if we're called, to overseas or to uh, to elsewhere, that you would just rise up and celebrate. Cheer that on. Finally, an opportunity. The neighborhood workabout is coming up May 21st. I can't preach about living a life of service and not give you a collective opportunity to express this together. What this is, in essence, is this. We have been combing the neighborhoods, seeking out needs of people who can't meet those needs themselves, either financially or physically. Light yard work, auto work, plumbing repair, cleaning gutters, whatever. We have already received a handful of needs that we are going to meet in our immediate neighborhood because God's people share. We have our own gutters to clean, but we'll get to it. We're going to share. We're going to do that collectively. I want you to join in prayer for the neighborhood workabout. We're going to do this in the spring and in the fall on a regular basis. I hope our neighbors get to this point. It's you guys again. Every time that we've walked the neighborhood, I want you to know this. Every time I think that we've walked this neighborhood, it's been to give, not to to ask for something. The one time we asked for something was we were asking for people's blood. It was a blood drive, so calm down. But it was through the Red Cross and all that. But that's the only thing we've asked for people. We, we've, 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 we've given a message of this. God is a generous God who gives. That's what we wanted to communicate. Here's how you can respond. You can pass out flyers today. Don't wait for your community group. Don't wait for your family. Don't wait for your mom and dad. There's a giant stack of community of, of flyers in the back. Uh, pass those out. We've already blanketed the neighborhood with about 400 of these. We need to expand some more because we believe we can meet more needs than the, the, the handful, four, five, six that we have. Do it as a community group, though. Uh, in addition to this, I haven't talked a lot about what it is to be a servant. Um, but what we are putting in your hands right now, come on forward, guys. We're going to give you all something called a servant's journal. This is a two-week devotional tool to help instill the spiritual discipline of service into your life. So every one of you is going to get a servant's journal right now. And what it's going to do is it's going to provide you a little devotional tool for two weeks leading up to, you guessed it, the neighborhood workabout. And in each of these is a little instructional uh, element for you. 
an opportunity for you to write down what God did for you in that time. Some of you do this anyways. Enjoy the exercise and start to keep track of it. Some of you have never done this. This is a great way to begin learning what it is to live a servant's life. Band, if I could get you to come on up. We're going to close out the service with a few songs. And as the band is getting settled, I want to give you three don'ts today. Don't pray, don't rejoice, and don't serve. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a pastor say this, but this is what I want you not to do. I don't want you to pray, I don't want you to rejoice, and I don't want you to serve. Here's what I mean. Don't pray for more opportunities. Pray for the courage to act on the opportunities that are all around you. I really believe that there are opportunities galore in a hundred different ways. It's exhibited here on a Sunday morning when people are here long before most of you arrive and they're just serving. They're meeting needs. They're, they're finding things that they can do. So don't pray for more opportunities so much as praying for courage and immediate obedience to those that are already in front of you. Rejoice. Don't rejoice primarily in the blessing that you have. Don't rejoice primarily in the ministry success that is going on. That's a common part of our prayer. Thank you, God. We rejoice for all the blessings you have. Rejoice that you're loved by God. Let that be so overwhelmingly large in your scope that while you do rejoice in these other things, they're secondary to that knowledge that you rely on, that you trust in, that you find your strength in, that you're loved by the Father. You're loved by the Sovereign King. All resources are at His disposal. And finally, don't serve God, love God. That will lead to a life of service. Don't put your focus, I need to serve God more. I need to serve God more. You're not serving God enough. That might be the enemy accusing you, trapping you into a life of Martha-like running around, always accomplishing but never knowing and resting in. You're actually dragging the name of God down when you're a worried, hectic freak. Because what you're communicating is, my God can't handle it. I've got to jump in and get this under control. You don't think a pastor wrestles with this? I do. I get myself ahead of God and I think, if I don't do this, this is gonna, then ministry won't happen. Give me a break. Not true. Rest, rely, trust in the love God has for you. You know what you're going to do? You're going to react to that. You're going to give that love away. You're going to see Jesus form in you. It may even shock you. It should shock those who've known you for a long time when they see this transformation. Let's pray, and then we'll sing, give, and we'll dismiss. God, we praise you that you have modeled for us, you've shown us what it is to live a life that is about loving you, communing with you, being in intimate fellowship with you. It was the focus of Jesus, and it produced results, good works. I pray, Father, that this tool that has been given, this servant's journal that Brother Rich wrote up for us, would be to us an encouragement, an instructor, a daily reminder that we not only claim 
to live in you, to follow you, but we actually follow you with our lives. We are excited and look forward to the ways you're going to use what you've already given to us as we entrust it to you for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.